0: Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities Podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities Podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening.
1: I'm Jeffrey Mason, researcher at the Charter Cities Institute, and joining me on the podcast today to discuss CCI's latest reference guide, the Urban Planning Guidelines for Charter Cities, is our own urban researcher, Heba El-Hanafi. Heba is an urban planner by background and is currently based in CCI's new Lusaka Zambia office. We discuss the content of the planning guidelines, as well as the philosophy and research behind it. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Heba. Thanks for joining me today on the show.
2: Oh, thank you for having me, Jeff.
1: So today's topic is, of course, our soon-to-be-released planning guidelines, city planning guidelines for charter cities, of which you are the author so tell us, what are these planning guidelines? What, what do they cover? Why do we write them? What's the story of the planning guidelines?
2: So yeah, the planning has a really long story. It goes to almost two years back. And it's basically the kind of first project I started when I joined CCI. Yeah, almost two years back. And it's just basically Mark telling me, hey, can you plan the future shorter city? Can you do like a 3D plan? And I was like, Hey, Mark, it doesn't work like this. You need to, you know, <laughs> develop more, I don't know, like an outline of how to plan, but you can't plan a city from in scratch or in air. And then, yeah, it almost took us two years to kind of have an outline of how to start thinking about the planning and design aspect of a shorter city. Yeah, so this is the planning guideline.
1: What are the planning guidelines actually cover. Why is this necessary? What mistakes are being made in current city planning, especially new city planning, that these guidelines attempt to correct?
2: Yeah, so urban planning is a kind of like an interesting science or a discipline or whatever because it's actually kind of like new, right? We started planning our cities somewhat recently. And the thing about planning is that it's always like half changed, right? We don't have the same principles in planning that we have 10 years ago. We don't even have the same principle that we have 15 years ago, and like every single year and every single time, those kind of principles keep changing. There are more conversations. Right now, you can see in more traditional city planning places talking about participation, talking about place making, basically all over the world. But the problem with new city making is that uh, those kind of conversations, they just never made it to new city making. And we've been going into a very traditional old school route and building our cities. If you look at kind of new city making literally all over the world, hundreds of cities that are being built right now, you can easily put them in three categories. You can either find like the kind of fancier suburbs, which is like something like Sheikh Zayed in Egypt encapsulates or more of like the bigger Chinese blocks which is something like kalimba new city in angola or more of like the dubai international style or whatever and the problem with those three paradigms or three kind of planning ways is that they don't really respond to the needs of new cities they don't respond to the problem that new that our current city exists so they keep reproducing the same problems planning the same way you keep reproducing the same problem that's why we were like Hey, you know, let's do the planning guideline and try to rethink how we plan and how we design our new cities. Yeah, so that's basically the main kind of goal for the planning guidelines.
1: Okay, so we have this sort of slate of problems that we're trying to address in new city building, and what we were, what you came up with in the planning guidelines is this paradigm for for planning that you call guided organic growth. So, can you explain sort of what this this philosophy for planning is? And sort of what are the key pillars of this new idea?
2: So before we go into like guided organic growth, let me just kind of reflect a little bit on how we tried to build out like these ideas, right? We looked at kind of three things to build out our major ideas from, right? The first thing we looked at Basically, how the global south built, what works, what doesn't work, what are the problems. We looked at cities like Cairo, which is like 70% informality, but somehow the informality works and you have electricity and water and whatever. We looked at how over time informal settlements seem to grow and somehow sustain itself. And we looked at current city projects, current new city projects a lot and historical city projects a lot. So through the planning guidelines, you're gonna find basically a lot, a lot of examples of new cities. And the third thing we looked at what is currently happening right now, what are the problems on the ground. We talked to a lot of on the ground city developers to try to understand this problem from. And then we kind of mushed up those three things and try to come up with how to actually rethink planning or rethink planning in new cities. And basically guided organic growth is trying to kind of shift the narrative of how we build new cities. And it has like three main components or so three main pillars. The first one is that we're trying to rethink city planning as a set of stakeholders, plus a set of activities and trying to match the best activity with the best stakeholder. In traditional new city planning, we usually have one stakeholder, which is a developer, whether it's a public or private or public-private partnership who comes in and just execute a vision from day one, basically, execute the vision 100% without really a lot of interventions from, well, uh, I don't know, nearby cities or governments or even the people who are gonna live there.
1: So, from moving dirt to the project is quote unquote complete.
2: Exactly, and you have usually one stakeholder, which is a developer who comes in and does everything, which it's problematic because it fits, first off it puts a lot of Capital front the developer has to put on, which may which always drives the prices of the cities very high because you have to do practically everything from the littlest public space to you know all of the CBD development, for instance. Uh, and the second thing is that then you have like one vision that is executed right you have and the vision of the people or how they want to live their lives the market forces that should come in and play a bigger role in the development doesn't really affect the city because you have it or re- everything already built out which limits growth it doesn't really include a lot of people in the development process so that's why we're thinking a lot of hey there are it's a sphere of activities developing a city and we have a sphere of stakeholders that include the local government that includes the national government that includes the developer and the community that's going to move in and just mix matching those ideas. The second thing is playing on the time frame, right? Again, most of our new city developments is just a developer comes in and develops everything from, as we said, ideation to a complete city. And this is something that we learned over and we keep learning over and over again from the development of formality or the more organic ways of people, how they build, is that they build over time. We can go look at any informal settlements that was there 20 years ago, and it looks completely different. Once people acquire capital, once there is more wealth, people tend to build better. And this is something that we want to bring to our shorter cities, is that we develop them in infrastructure, we develop roads and services, and as the city accumulates wealth, we then go into the less essential sphere of activities. And the second pillar is the top-down and bottom-up approaches. Again, with new city development, we see basically 99% or almost 100% of new cities are being developed top-down. There is, I mean, because participation is harder, of course, in new cities because the people haven't moved in, but it's usually very top-down and it's not working. And that's why we're thinking, hey, a mix of top-down and bottom-up approaches, the same ideas that are found in our cities right now that are uh, discussed by all our planners, we can a little bit communicate them in new city planning or implement them in new city planning. Those are basically kind of the three main pillars of building a new city.
1: Okay. So that that makes sense, to I think, to draw on all these different traditions where things are being done, some of it's working, some of it's not. And so what we're trying to do here, I think, is pull out the best of of what is working, but that's also relevant in the context that we're talking about, right? Because a new city in one place at a particular, say, income level isn't necessarily going to look like a city. In another place at, at a very different income level yeah and i think these guidelines do a good job of bridging that
2: gap and trying to really think about like who do you want right because in charter cities in, in cci we always talk about how charter cities can do can help lift people out of poverty right but for us to be able to attract those people who live in poverty that means that we have to build the way that they're building and also drive prices a whole way down for them to actually be out able to move to the city that is going to increase their wealth over time. So just thinking of who we're building for was also like a huge driver in planning those on setting out planning guidelines.
1: I think this is going to prove to be a really important sort of step forward in the field of planning. So one additional thing that I wanted to hit on and sort of what went into these guidelines Are some of the ideas coming out of the sort of market urbanist communities? We've had Alain Berteau, author of Order Without Design, one of our favorite books, on the podcast. More recently, we've had Scott Beyer, founder of the Market Urbanism Report, on the podcast. I think the ideas of the market urbanist community that that sort of market forces are incredibly important in, in shaping cities and what cities look like, how they operate, how it is to live in a city they've had a lot of influence on us. So can you talk a little bit about how sort of the ideas coming out of that world influenced the the guidelines? Yeah,
2: that's a, that's a really cool question because that is not my world. That is not the world I come from. I come from an urban geography, urban sociology kind of world. And I remember all of the discussions that we had when I first joined the Institute and the book discussions and even the onboarding discussion with you, Jeff and Mark, talking about things like productivity or efficiency and all of these kind of newer words for me, I would say. And then, of course, yeah, reading the, reading the work of Alan Borto and others in the market urbanism sphere and understanding really the power that the economics have on shaping cities. And then from there, once you just like kind of understand this and then you start combining it a little bit more with what actually works for the community, they actually, we we realize that they actually, you know, they, they work together very well. And I think like communities all over the world and specifically how the Global South builds, how the informal settlements are being built are basically applying the rules of market urbanism and the importance of land values and this kind of stuff. Like the communities already get them. I think the problem is with, A little bit, the developers and the government are a little bit behind on that. And the planners as well, of course, the planning community is, well, there is a little bit of progress currently in city making, but in new city making specifically, this has been kind of a little bit behind. That's why I also think the planning guidelines are important in just starting a conversation specifically on greenfield development. Because I think while cities, we have progressed a lot, new city development, are kind of still not completely applying the rules or the ideas, or really learning from the ideas of market urbanism into their development. Which I think eventually it will—it will help everyone, to help the community, to help the developer. It will make more money. Like on every scale, it just works, right?
1: Well, here's hoping these guidelines end up end up pushing these some of these new cities in a more positive and I think realistic direction. So I think now that we've got an understanding at a high level what the guidelines are why they were written and sort of the thinking that is behind them that went into them. Let's get into some of the, the details. So so the guidelines are broken up into three main sections. So there's city development guidelines, urban planning guidelines, and mobility guidelines. So let's let's start with the first on city development guidelines. So we've kind of talked about some of this already, but broadly what is what does this section cover and what are what are the key ideas in this section of the guidelines?
2: So I always think about like city development guidelines are basically the big ideas, right? Like the paradigm shift that we talked about. The values that we envision all of our future shorter cities to have, things like affordability, accessibility, inclusivity, growth-oriented, which is always kind of like a back idea of new city planning everywhere. You can look at Brasilia, you can look at many new city developments, which is like growth. Growth is not some; it's like a city is gonna stop at a certain point. Not a successful city, it grows. So those kind of like values that we want to have in our, in, in our future shorter cities. We have them there. We also have the paradigm shift. So it's big ideas. And then you go into the second and third part, which is the urban planning guidelines and the mobility guidelines That basically how it takes those ideas and it takes them into implementation. So things like Especially in the planning guidelines, in the urban planning guidelines, we see things like it breaks down our ideas on density, it breaks down our ideas on street networks, it breaks down our ideas on land use, it breaks down our ideas on housing and gives concrete examples of how to do this on both short-term and long-term processes and as well goes back to the paradigm and also cobbles those those activities, not just on a long-term and short-term, but also with the right stakeholder. So it's basically how the urban planning guidelines and the mobility guidelines, is, it takes the city development ideas and just breaks them down into actionable things that a developer, a future short-term developer can take and actually implement or take them and help guide the development of his new city.
1: Thanks. So I think it would be helpful here for our listeners to kind of talk through some of the different examples that we raised throughout these these sections and sort of how drawing on either existing cities or, or other types of projects and how they kind of exemplify these these sort of values. So one that I think is, is particularly interesting and, and I think that we've touched on before on some other projects, one that I think is, is really interesting is the Ethiopia Urban Expansion Initiative. So can you talk a little bit about sort of what that was and how a project like that which is something focused on existing cities, perhaps that we could say the periphery of existing cities goes into uh, how we're, we're thinking about building out new cities.
2: So one thing that we try to do throughout the planning guide, uh, the planning guidelines in general, is just cover a lot of new settlements or new development ideas that actually worked, that drove down the pride, that attracted people, that attracted businesses, even if it's not a full city scale, but like this kind of small example that actually worked were really important to us because they don't just validate our ideas, they're an actual proof that those kind of ideas work, they're not just like something up in the air. And one really cool example is the example that you just mentioned, Jeff, and basically what they did is that to plan for the expansion of a district, they they thought about infrastructure as essential and non-essential, and then they provided what they called essential infrastructure, which was basically roads, electricity, and land plots, which is, of course, really important for the development of any settlement. And it actually, the results of this project was really interesting because, first off, it drove the prices, way down and it helped develop an actual a mixed use community just because you're laying down the ground you're providing the main infrastructure and then you're letting the community and the market forces come and shape the space and again going back to our uh, the ideas of market urbanism it's always the market is always going to take over economics is always going to shape the city anyways so just providing that base, which is We talk a lot about the planning guidelines in different ways, providing that bit of infrastructure and letting the community and market take over. It really developed a very well-developed community. It's very healthy. It actually was much cheaper to to build there or to own a land there than in all of the other developments very nearby that developed in a more of like a traditional way where things were developed from. A to Z, let's say. So this is, yeah, it's a really cool example that we learned from and it's actually a proof that this kind of approach to city building it actually works.
1: So there's, I think the key lesson there is, right, there's, there's a lot of value in for the, it could either be the government or the developer itself kind of laying out some baseline parameters. Okay, here's what the road network is going to be. Here's where, here's how the land is going to be subdivided and you're going to know this in advance and people can behave and act in response to the, that, that sort of planning and, and make their own decisions rather than it being left entirely to basically whatever people want to do, which as uh, I think we've talked about a bit, ends up being sort of very costly later on and trying exactly. to actually provide them services or the alternative where it's all planned out directly from the top and the people who end up living there have no real input. So thanks to our friends at the Marin Institute at, at NYU for giving us that really cool example uh, of something that's that's
2: worked. Yeah. And it actually inspired a really important part of our implement our ideas about implementation where we highlight two main ideas about implementation, right? The first thing that we talk about is the demarcation of public and private. So again, coming from the idea that we don't have to build everything from scratch, we don't have to spend our money on developing the littlest public space, a demarcation is a good way to blend the roads, to blend the land plots, and then the communities, the market forces can come in, the investors can come in with a solid plan that is going to develop over the years. The second thing is the idea of radio infrastructure. So again, essential infrastructure and non-essential infrastructure, essential infrastructure that are needed for businesses and for communities to come in. It will be provided by the developers, the governments, and non-essential infrastructure will develop over time as the city gains wealth, as so the communities come in and they can actually develop their well, public spaces or their shared streets the way that fits them as the community grows. So this was also like very important to develop our ideas on how to implement all of these ideas. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Another example that we, we, we touch on that I've always been a big fan of this is Manhattan, right? So Lower Manhattan was, you know, it was developed early, so it doesn't follow that much of a pattern. But then once you get a certain point, it's aside from Central Park and a few other odds and ends, it's essentially a perfect grid.
2: Exactly, and it worked,
1: yeah, right? So, and it worked. And it worked. And to, he's like talk about, it. so it's like, that, that's like another, I think, right, the Ethiopian Urban Expansion Initiative was sort of a very small-scale example of, of these ideas in practice, whereas what happened with Manhattan is sort of a very large-scale example of what is, in a sense, almost the same idea. Exactly. Talk about that a little bit.
2: Okay, so the Manhattan example is really cool because also, like, I'm the biggest fan of informal settlements, and uh, we're, we try to reference this a lot of uh, development settlements in the planning guidelines. But one problem with the informal settlements, where there's a lot of problems, but one single problem is when you try to go back and develop the informal settlements, it's actually very costly, right? So providing water once the settlement is already developed, while well, it's good for the informal settlement and it will help uh, develop it and everything is actually quite costly. So something that you can completely learn from the Manhattan Great example is providing that minimal First, push on a green field site would not just save costs on the long term, but it would also attract investors, it would also attract developers, and it will work. Like we've, we see Manhattan work, we see Manhattan work from day one, and it will drive down prices a lot in the initial phase of development, which is something that many or almost all of the new city developments suffer from is that initial push of finance, like where is it going to come from, how long are we going to sustain it, and can we actually drive prices down for the lower classes that we're trying to get out of poverty, right? So the Manhattan Grid lays out an almost kind of perfect idea of what an initial push of infrastructure, just a tiny bit, and letting market forces and the community come in and do their thing it actually work and it's still working.
1: I think it's a great example of these kind of ideas in practice and really of the sort of guided organic growth idea that you articulate in these guidelines. Let's touch, we we talked a good bit about city developing and and sort of the main urban planning tools. Let's let's talk about the mobility section as well. What's covered here and why is it so important to sort of enhance mobility?
2: Okay, so I think that we can agree on this, that we all look at cities as labor markets, right? And well, since I mean, we're in 2022, you don't live where you work, right? Like you have a place where you work and you have a place where you live and you need to get from point A to point B every single day. And if we look at, again, if we look at cities as labor markets, then we need to facilitate that accessibility of labor on a daily basis because you go to work every single day. And this is why we were like, hey, if we're going to cover planning guidelines, we're going to cover ideas about density and use zoning or whatever, we have to cover ideas about how to get people to work so the city can actually work and can grow economically and can grow over the years. So this was basically the motivation behind, you know, developing specific mobility guidelines. And our main goal with the mobility guidelines is basically one thing, it's trying to get as much people or as much labor as possible from one point to another or from their home to their work in less than 30 minutes, which kind of entails a more compact design. It entails uh, mixed use development and entails just like uh, commercial and industrial development all over the city. But it's it's basically all comes from market urbanism and Alberto ideas of cities are labor markets, and we're just trying to get the labor to the work. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so, I guess one thing that I think is why this is particularly important is I don't know that everyone has, or all of our listeners would necessarily have an intuitive grasp of, of just how bad, I think, mobility is in a lot of the rapidly growing megacities throughout the the sort of global South and how long it would take to get from one side to the other. So, so can you talk a little bit about sort of what the sort of state of play in global South cities looks like when it actually looks like, when it actually comes from getting um, from point A to point B that isn't just next door or just down the street?
2: Yeah, I think like one, one really, one good example, not good. One example that always strikes me. I remember, I remember Jeff when during like early COVID when Emmanuel was always in a car during our meetings, it was be, it, Emmanuel at this point was in, um, Emmanuel's operation manager, he was still in Lagos at this point, and he was just trying to survive and trying to just get from one point to another, and it would always take him more than an hour. And I'm personally from Alexandria, Egypt, seven years ago, and it's uh, more of like a more compact city than Cairo, for instance. But in Cairo, you also one blast hour to get from one point to another. And that's on a good day, right? I, I remember Emmanuel told me once that he was stuck in traffic for four hours, and I was like, if I was ever traffic, stuck in traffic for about four hours, I'm gonna go completely insane. <laughs> so, yeah, I, no, I will. And so, currently, I'm living in Lusaka, right? And so working for our new office in Zambia. And one thing you see a lot in sub Saharan Africa is that instead of building upwards, they build outwards, and thus the four hour drive to get from one point to another inside of the same city. And that's why it was kind of very urgent. And it says it's very urgent in our cities and in, in the new cities like, to try to actively avoid those problems. And basically you avoid them, of course, with density, but you avoid them with setting out strategies that actively avoid those problems and actively try to solve them from the get-go and there are a lot of solutions that work right that you can see in the global south you know like the private public minibuses those are great those are, those are amazing but again those are not everywhere again building outwards instead of densifying the city in itself is a huge and it still is a huge problem all over the global south and this is why mobility really is important we can't spend four hours in traffic left we can't
1: no that is not a functional city no so one of the key pieces of the the mobility section talks about trying to minimize the need or reliance on cars. And and it's an interesting case, right? Because car ownership relative in, say, sub-Saharan Africa or in South Asia or, or anywhere else relative to, say, the United States, especially the United States or maybe Europe, car ownership rates are much lower. Yet in a lot of ways, these cities are still sort of very car dependent, even though that many people don't own cars. So can you talk a little bit about What the mobility guidelines try to do to create sort of one less car centric cities in terms of their design, but also in terms of sort of what what it is people actually need or how how they can get around on a day to day basis that that minimizes the need for, for cars at all.
2: Yeah, so I think one thing that we can like, I think everyone agrees on from all different urbanist walks is that cars are not good for our cities. They haven't been good. They haven't been working. They're environmentally bad. They're costy. You are not stuck in traffic. You are traffic. When, like, when you drive, this is one of my favorite quotes. Yeah, and again, that's why, you know, a lot of the global south, although not everyone has cars, everyone who can afford a car, they will get one. Why? Because you honestly cannot, because since they're building outwards, not building upwards, you really cannot go anywhere without the car. Public transportation, stuck big time. There is all, there is, I mean, it kind of barely exists even in bigger cities. And that's why, like, we have three main principles, right, in the shorter city mobility strategies. The first one is accessible transport and the second one is minimizing the need for a private car. And you don't need a private car if you can walk if you can walk like 10 or if you live like 10 or 15 minutes walk or even like a 30 minute walk away from your job you're just gonna walk you, you don't need a car right? So the design in itself and designing a, a more of a compact city will kind of take a lot from that. The second thing is developing a reliable accessible, affordable and safe public transportation systems. So let's take the metro in Cairo, for example, the metro in Cairo, even if you are actually rich and you have money and you can take a really nice, I don't know, Mercedes or whatever to work, you will get on the metro because it's, well, it's just faster and it is somehow reliable. So as long as you can provide those alternatives that are safe, reliable and accessible for everyone, people are just going to go there. So from scratch, while you're designing the city, while you're building the city, while you still have the chance. And this is what I really like about shorter cities, right? They're greenfield development. So we have the chance to kind of avoid those problems. So build a more compact city. If you're, you know, as we learned, if your trips are walkable or you can ride a, a bicycle, you're just, this will be easier and more affordable for you. So build that infrastructure for walking, for cycling, for a good reliable public transport infrastructure and people are just going to do it so this is basically how you minimize the need for private cars is eliminate the need for private cars find alternatives, you know
1: yeah and i think this is especially important for new cities in in the global south because so many of them are uh maybe they say that they are sort of targeted for a wide audience but their design tends to lend themselves essentially for only those that that have cars and 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 there's this this disconnect here. I think these guidelines, when implemented, will, will prove to be quite important. Yeah, in harmonizing that. Yeah,
2: it's so funny Jeff, right? Like, cause you you know, if you're in the U.S. or whatever, people are like screaming about how suburbs are bad and not dense enough or whatever, and all of the problems that come with the suburbs, and then you go. Um, to a lot of the new developments in, in, Af- in Sub-Saharan Africa or in even Northern Africa or whatever, and they're basically just kind of reproducing those suburbs that we know are super problematic and are super unsustainable and are actually way costy, while the rhetoric and everything is just like show, goes back to hey, more compact, more densities are good for transport, for labor markets, and for basically just like literally everyday life.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting case I think of what some folks have called isomorphic mimicry where you're trying to make something sort of in appearance or whatever trying to copy what others someone else did that seemed to work without really replicating the underlying conditions or factors that made something work or not. I think in in a sense these guidelines tried to be or try to introduce a bit of humility. To the practice of designing new cities, which I I think is something that's sorely needed.
2: Yeah, humility is something that is definitely needed. Yeah, I mean, we're past like utopian architects who design everything from (laughs) scratch. We we try to say that here is the thing that we try to say that we're past that, right? We're past like Orbidier, now we're designing in like participation communities and all of the kind of stuff. But the truth is that doesn't reflect at all in new city development. Again, I mean, the global south is urbanizing as like, I mean, I think we say this, I'm pretty sure we say this in every single podcast, right? It's urbanizing in a tremendous way, right? And most of this urbanizing is happening in Asia and it's happening in Africa. And the way we build still in Asia and Africa is not based on what Asia and Africa need. It's just based on this kind of principles that were made by the architects a couple of decades back and we're just kind of following them. And we keep building bad cities and more bad cities and more bad cities. And I think more than anything, the planning guideline is like, hey guys, can we stop and just like think about it? I mean, you don't have to follow everything. You don't have to believe in everything that we write, but just like, let's stop, have a conversation, like have a, a true conversation on all of this, how we can actually build better, right? And build more sustainable and more affordable and just build our own stuff, right? for once.
1: I think that sums it up quite nicely. I mean, I, I hope these planning guidelines do start those conversations, but also actually sees some imp- implementation in the coming years on the ground and has a real influence over the people designing these projects and pursuing these projects. And I, of course, it's, it's, it's our document, so I'm going to say this, yeah. but I think it's in the best interests of, of their project. And if new city developers really do want to build vibrant, successful new cities. I think there's a lot to learn from these guidelines. So thank you for, for all of your hard work over the past two or so years in in drafting these documents,
2: Eva. And thank you, Jeff, and thank you, Curtis, for all your help and all your guidance throughout this whole process. I thank everyone who gave feedback on this. It's been a process, and hopefully it will see the light soon. So
1: Yeah, so to our listeners, please check out the Charter Cities Institute's urban planning guidelines and thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us, Eba.
2: Thanks for having me there.
0: Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Letter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast.